0: Without the doctrine of justification, which is the center of all Christian theology, you're never going to get Christian living, which includes things like the blessings of marriage, which includes things like how we ought to treat each other. Justification speaks to all of those things Mm -hmm. and informs us as to how we ought to live in those particular ways. Without it, we'll never have that foundation. Without it, we get moralism. If we get the cart before the
1: horse, we end up with law substituted as gospel.
2: Did you know that you can help support the work of the White Horse Inn every time you purchase something at Amazon.com by using Amazon Smile? At no additional charge to you, Amazon will donate a small percentage of every transaction to the White Horse Inn when you link your account to Amazon Smile. Simply visit smile.amazon.com and enter White Horse Inc. That's White Horse I-N-C. Again, simply head to smile.amazon.com and enter White Horse Inc. Thanks for your support. Five centuries ago in taverns and public houses
3: across Europe, the masses would gather for discussion and debate over the latest ideas sweeping the land. From one such meeting place, a small Cambridge Inn called the White Horse, the Reformation came to the English-speaking world. Carrying on the tradition, welcome to the White Horse Inn.
1: Hello and welcome to another edition of the White Horse Inn where we get to start a new series, this time on the Doctrine of Justification. It gives us a great opportunity to go into the history and, more importantly, the biblical basis for the doctrine and its pastoral implications. Whatever justification meant in the 16th century, whatever the Reformation was all about, That's not the question. How can I, a sinner, be justified before a holy God? It's just not a question that we're asking today. Luther's search for a gracious God made sense in a world terrified by evil, death, and hell. So how does the gospel even make sense in a world in which human flourishing is the only end, where God's majesty is reduced to benign empowerment for our life projects, and hell is a depressed state of mind? There can be no God, the philosopher Friedrich Nietzsche wrote, since man would not tolerate having such a witness. I think a lot of people reject God precisely because they don't want him to judge or justify them. Robert J. Lifton, a psychologist and pioneer in brain research, observes that the source of many anxieties and indeed neuroses in our society today is a nagging sense of guilt without knowing its source. So we think, you know, even without those witnesses, we know from Scripture, more importantly, that we're created in the image of God and know that something's wrong, but we don't know why. We don't know what it is, and only the gospel can relieve us of that terrible burden, that secret terror that we can't put our finger on, but fills us with anxiety throughout our lives. Here to talk about this really wonderful doctrine The Doctrine by Which the Church Stands or Falls. You have Justin Holcomb, who is an Anglican minister and teaches at Reform Seminary in Orlando, Steve Parks, Missouri Synod Lutheran minister and professor at Concordia University in Irvine, California, and Jeremy Young, pastor of First Baptist Church in Hacienda Heights, California. I'm Mike Horton. I teach at Westminster Seminary, California. Gentlemen, it's great to have you on this program First of all, given the background that I laid out in, in the commentary there, what do you say to people who tell us today, fellow pastors even, say, you know, you're kind of leading with this doctrine of justification and uh, salvation being delivered from God's judgment and wrath. and so That's not where people are today. They want to know how to live their lives better. They want to dot, dot, dot. Are they really saying... That They don't know anything about the holiness of God, and they're not going to, if they do, they're not going to communicate that to others.
3: Number one, I've never heard a pastor mention that to me, but I think by the ways in which they structure their church services or mm. by the things that they're preaching, they communicate that. Mm. If someone was to say that to me just outright, I would say it doesn't really matter where they are, nor does it matter where you feel like you are because the Bible says something about where you are, and you need to be concerned about that. Now, typically, if I'm engaging, let's say, with uh, a nominal Christian, a non-Christian, I'm going to try and draw out the fact that the thing that they want and that something could be a better marriage. Like I'm talking to a friend right now whose marriage is frankly falling apart and he wants wants it to be fixed. And uh, I'm trying to say to him, look, it would be awesome if it were outwardly fixed, but your main problem is this thing. But let's be sure when you get right with God, of course, naturally, you're going to know how to live your life. And so in that sense, then marriage falls underneath, you know, a bigger biblical worldview. And he has given us instructions on that.
0: It's given us really kind of a almost a cart before the horse sort of thing, where if people make suggestions like we really need to meet people where they're at and what they're most interested in is how to live. It's kind of like saying, well, I don't need to fuss with all this stuff about grapes. I just want wine. (laughs) Right. (laughs) Without the grapes, uh, you're never going to get wine. Without the doctrine of justification, which is the center of all of Christian theology, you're never going to get Christian living, which includes things like the blessings of marriage, which includes things like how we ought to live, which includes things like how we ought to treat each other. Justification speaks to all of those things Mm -hmm. and informs us as to how we ought to live in those particular ways. Without it, we'll never have that foundation. And without it, we get moralism. If we get the cart before the horse,
1: we end up with law substituted as gospel. You know, here, I'm going to give you tips on marriage, or I'm going to help you live a more fulfilling life. The evangelicals on the right tell us how we can have our best life now, individualistic kind of narcissism, while the folks on the left tell us how we can have our best world now. But they're both telling us law. They're both giving us commands. Some of it may be from the Bible. A lot of it isn't. They're giving us their own commands. And presenting this as gospel, this is good news. No, that's not good news. How I can save the planet or how I can save myself, that's not good news. The good news is, how have I been saved by God?
4: Yeah, letting people diagnose their own condition is what we're bumping into. I mean, I don't blame people in the church for thinking pragmatically and individualized because that's what they're given in their culture, and as Jeremy noted, Practically, that's what they're getting. Many people know about Christian Smith, who he's a sociologist who years ago said that the issue in America is moralistic, therapeutic deism. And that's basically what we're dealing with is be nice because it'll help them actualize their potential. And when God, who's not really involved, finally lets them into heaven, they'll have a good record. That's what most people think. And to not call that narrative into question is letting people diagnose their situation. And this happens to all of us. I mean, I I was going through some conflict with someone and I kept on thinking, well, how do I fix this? Well, one of my friends who's a pastor kept on saying, Justin, you think you're angry and you think you might even be afraid. He's like, I think you're dealing with shame because you think you're not lovable. And I think what the answer to this is, is that you need to know if you're standing before God. He didn't just give me an oar and say, I think you should paddle in that direction. He actually brought me to the rock and gave me a foundation. And so What I needed was a lot more than just how do I navigate conflict, but what is my security and assurance?
1: Yeah, that's an interesting point, Justin. It reminds me of the line from J. Gresham Machen, who uh, was New Testament professor at Princeton Seminary and uh, kind of led the charge for orthodoxy and uh, was subsequently kicked out. But he once observed, here is found the most fundamental difference between liberalism and Christianity liberalism is altogether in the imperative mood. While Christianity begins with a triumphant indicative, liberalism appeals to man's will while Christianity announces a gracious act of God. That really seems to describe not just liberalism today, but a lot of the standard evangelical fare that you get out there. The, the indicative, the announcement of what God has done for us in Christ is marginalized, even in churches that officially affirm it. And if you ask them if they believe it, they'd say, of course I do. But is, is marginalized in favor of imperative after imperative after imperative, often said with a smile, often said as a kind of buddy, a life coach, helping you iron things out. But still, law, just all law, imperatives without indicatives are deadly. But that does describe a lot of what you get in the church today. Does that mean that we're kind of living in an era today that is
4: similar to the era of the Reformers in that respect? Absolutely. When I ask people, what is the gospel? Give me a two-sentence definition of the gospel. Too often I hear love the lord your god with all your heart mind soul and strength and love your neighbor as yourself that's the gospel Mm -hmm. and i've had to tell them that's actually the law that's a summary of the law for people to be asked what is the good news and the good news is love god and love your neighbor they've picked that up from somewhere they actually think that the message of christianity is the imperative mood which is the command and that's why we end up with saying things like oh we have to go do the gospel I'm like no this is a pronouncement this is the grand wonderful declaration of the indicative of what god has done in christ you know as machen said elsewhere i don't need your exhortations if something's been done to save me will you tell me that and so yeah i do think we are still living in an age where we need the great wisdom of the 200 proof doctrines of grace from the reformation
0: there's a real pernicious character to that as well. I mean, the, the whole idea is basically wanting to take something like the doctrine of justification, how it is that we receive life and salvation and the forgiveness of sins, and to shift it away from Christ onto something or somebody else. We see this in crass forms of of works righteousness that we encounter in everyday lives even within folks who are members of our own traditions who just may not know better. But we also find it with people who consider themselves to be some of the staunchest defenders of justification by faith, by which they mean that God saves or forgives me because I believe. Hmm. And again, it becomes not Christ. That's the foundation for my salvation, but my, my faith. faith. Or even just God's love, right? God just loves me and chooses to forgive. Justification
1: uh, by love. You know.
0: Yeah, and this is why... Justification cannot be discussed apart from Christ, right? The sola gratia, grace alone, Mm -hmm. and the sola fide, faith alone, must be brought together in the solus Christus, Christ alone.
1: That's such an important point. We are not justified by faith. That's shorthand for being justified by Christ through faith in him. And it's so important to get that right. Faith is not the basis of our justification. Christ is the basis. We are justified by what Christ did for us 2,000 years, objectively. We receive that through faith. And faith is nothing other than clinging to Christ. And that's a
0: gift also. The faith we have is a gift from God. Yeah. And you find this, too, especially with new Christians who are really excited about their faith— They're so excited, but they don't understand yet the depth of how much they rely upon Christ. And so all of their Facebook posts and other social media things that are urging people to do the right things are good. But they're not what Christianity is all about. If it were, then people who say that we all basically believe the same thing would be right. So when folks, as a pastor, when people say that to me, and and as now a university professor, when people say that to me, I say, oh, that's good to hear. I didn't know that Muslims believe that God became incarnate, suffered, died, and rose again for me. Well, they don't. Well, then I guess we don't believe the same thing at our core.
1: Yeah, it's amazing when people say that all religions basically teach the same thing. You ask them, what does that mean? What do you think that they all teach? That's the same thing. It's the heart of our natural law, that we are supposed to love God and our neighbor. And there's this nagging sense that we haven't. But only the Bible introduces us to a holy God who tells us why we have those anxieties. We're not just anxious, we're guilty. We don't just have shame, we have objective condemnation. How important is it, then, that we understand the biblical plot that begins with Adam and Eve created upright in God's image, and then committing high treason, being evicted from paradise, but with the promise that in due time, God will send a seed of the woman who will crush the serpent's head? How important is it that people understand the seriousness of who God is and the underlying plot that makes sense of the fall, redemption, and the coming consummation?
3: I'd say absolutely important. I mean, if we aren't giving our people what God himself has said about us and what he's done in history, I mean, we are absolutely lost. I think what was powerful for me was just preaching through Genesis and Exodus. And uh, I came from, you know, the general evangelical background where the storyline of redemption wasn't presented dare to be a daniel
1: and <laughs> yeah the yeah, the leadership yeah. principles of joshua mm-hmm.
3: typical sermons on you know david and things like this but when i preach through genesis and exodus it's just so absolutely clear that a holy god has chosen to draw near to sinners who deserve mm-hmm. condemnation and in his grace he chooses to do that and then you, you go through exodus and yet he's doing it again And all by his grace, he provides a sacrifice, and he tells his people how to live, and then he also gives us instructions on how we are to draw near, because you can't just simply turn up casually, as many people desire to do today, at least in Mm -hmm. their hearts.
1: Yeah, when you think of how God only allowed people into his presence, paradoxically, by keeping them at a distance, all of the New Testament invitations to come near into the Holy of Holies... It makes all the difference in the world. And being brought near. Being brought near, not yeah. coming near, being brought near. Um, let's talk a little bit here about justification in terms of the book of Romans, beginning in the first chapter.
0: Well, when Paul begins his discussion, he begins it with humanity, and he begins it with the the state in which essentially all of us find ourselves, Right. Whether you are a Jew or whether you are a Gentile, we see in Romans chapter 1, in Romans chapter 2, you are without excuse. You know the difference between right and wrong. You have done wrong and you have failed to do what is right. No one righteous, no not one. Exactly, right? So the idea there is is that whether you have that truth revealed to you simply by your conscience, as God has written his moral law on our hearts and minds, and that's true of all people, or whether you have, in addition to that, also his revealed word, the idea is that you are without excuse. And so everybody stands under the condemnation of a holy and righteous and infinite God. And that leaves us in quite a predicament. And if that were the end of Romans, of course, all of us would be in big trouble. But Romans 3 lays out for us that this problem is universal, that there is none righteous, no, not one. Uh, And then as we move into Romans chapter 4, we begin to find the cure for this problem, the grace that comes along and is the remedy for our guilt. And that comes about primarily in the person of Christ who does what we could never do. He keeps the law perfectly in our place, right, without ever having failed. And yet God in his holiness still requires that sin be punished. And uh, in the person of Christ, it is, in fact, punished as he bears the price that all of us should have paid, but were unable to pay. And then, of course, rises again from the dead. And because God's kindness, his undeserved favor is given to us because of that person, because of Jesus, that means it's not given to us because of what we do. Mm. And so you find these exaltations in the book of Romans, like Romans chapter 4 Verse 5, right? Now, to the one who does not work, but believes in him who justifies the ungodly, his faith is credited as righteousness. Just as David speaks of the man to whom sin is not imputed, the happiness of the man to whom sin is not imputed, and so forth. Why isn't it imputed? Because it's already been imputed to Christ, and now his life, his righteousness is imputed to us. That's the heart of justification.
1: I find it interesting, too, that in Romans one sixteen, Paul sort of uh, announces the first part of his argument, For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men, who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. The wrath of God is revealed from heaven by the law. And that's all the way to verse 19 of chapter 3. the righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ for all who believe, and it goes on to say, justified freely by his blood, so amazingly there he turns from the diagnosis of the illness, no one righteous, no not one, according to the law, every one is condemned, Jew and Gentile alike, to hey, wait a minute, the law reveals God's wrath, but the Gospel reveals the righteousness not by which God judges, but by which he justifies, namely by imputing Christ's righteousness to us. What an amazing transition there in Paul's argument. It's amazing to me when people can't see that. It's so
3: obvious. And it speaks of God's kindness in giving us the law. Yeah. Doesn't it? I mean, it exposes our sins so that we might
0: turn to him who saves us from our sin. Absolutely. This is this something is... that I think we really miss in our culture, and the church perhaps doesn't do such a very good job at it, is that we we stop halfway with our job, right? Um, it's, it's okay and, and good and praiseworthy to point out sin. It's a necessity. And why is it a necessity? Because God wants to diagnose your problem that he may get you to the solution to that problem, right? Nobody, generally speaking, is interested in just going out and hanging out at a doctor's office because they enjoy the, the Muzak and the Highlights magazines, right? Mm-hmm. People go to the doctor for one reason only, they know they're sick. And by the same token, when God reveals to us our sin in the law, it's not because he delights in it, rubs his hands together and laughs maniacally, but he does it with an aim toward introducing us to our savior, mm-hmm. right? Letting us know our need. And the church so often is known for pointing out the naughtiness in society right? And the shame acts that people commit, but falling short of getting to that thing that God so desires people to know, which is the mercy and forgiveness mm. in His Son, Jesus. Mm.
4: The gift of Romans that, that you all are talking about is the shorthand for justification is that our sins are forgiven and we are declared righteous. And many people think that the message of the gospel is only that our sins are forgiven and that the righteousness is up to us to add on to it. So They think justification gets us back out of debt to zero, and then we add to our account something, thanks be to God that we're out of debt, and what's being taught in Romans and what we're celebrating is the great exchange of Christ takes our debt and gives us his great inheritance of his righteousness that is imputed to us, so we're out of debt and we're given the wealth of his righteousness. That's the message that actually is spectacular for people to hear because they think, okay, sins are forgiven. That's great. I got to get to work now. And this is a different message than that. Yeah. My wife often says that she heard forgiveness in her
1: evangelical background. She heard forgiveness of sins, but the life-changing, absolutely revolutionary thing was the active obedience of Christ. Namely, that justification does not mean just as if i'd never sinned that's just forgiveness it's great but that's not enough to be saved it is just as if i'd never sinned and as if i had perfectly fulfilled the law myself that's amazing
4: yeah yes yeah, the language of of second adam from romans 5 is christ is the last adam the second adam who actually was obedient and didn't need to have an animal sacrifice so his nakedness would be covered. So he was the obedient Adam, and there there were no obedient Adams. Even the people after Adam failed. And so finally we have an Adam in whom there is obedience and righteousness, and we get the benefits of our representative now. Mike, you
3: mentioned uh, why do people miss it. I think people miss it because it is just straight-up offensive. It goes directly against my desire to live according to my own righteousness. It cuts right across the grain of my desire for autonomy, that I live underneath somebody else's law, and therefore I stand Mm. condemned underneath them. And then so to hear Romans, you know, much of Romans 1, 2, and 3 uh, is just offensive. I don't like it. And so, man, you can just imagine. I mean, justification by faith alone in Jesus, uh, his wonderful work gets diminished, the less and less I realize that I am under a holy God. That's right.
0: Yeah, I mean, the part that you just mentioned as it relates to the law and not liking to be under that condemnation and so forth is true enough, but also as it relates to the gospel, there's a sense in which it strikes us as being too good to be true. Yeah. The fact that somebody else did it all and there's Mm -hmm. nothing for me, you know. That can't be
1: just. It can't be just for a person to live his whole life murdering people and doing horrible things and then in prison he becomes a Christian and he gets to be saved, while a good person is damned forever for not believing in Jesus. That's just not right. That's what
0: I hear. Which is essentially the parable of the vineyard, right? <laughs> you have those that were doing what they were supposed to be doing for a very long period yeah. of time, and those who are, are brought in at the very end, they receive the same reward and or people the older, are upset about
1: the it. the older brother yeah. in the parable of the prodigal son, he's angry because the prodigal actually gets the father's embrace, and he has never—he, the older brother, has never actually related ever to the father as a son, but only as a servant.
4: Yeah, I'm wondering, as we're thinking through uh, how people are missing this, and I'm wondering if there's a reverberation from the teaching of the Council of Trent, which encapsulated the Roman Catholic understanding uh, during the time of the Reformation, countering the Reformation— where they just conflated justification and sanctification. And the same thing that Aquinas did. They, there wasn't a separation between how we are made right with God and how we are growing in obedience. And they just put it all together and call it salvation. If people are reading the Bibles and seeing indicatives and seeing imperatives, not knowing how the law and gospel relate, they kind of just mush them all together and don't have the precision and the distinction between what these categories are. And that's one of the things that you know that's so helpful of having precise language and categories for, you know, this is justification, this is sanctification, this is how it works. And if people aren't taught that regularly and given those categories, they can go to the Bible and miss
0: these things because they're coming to it with the lenses of ambiguity. There's something, Mike, that within the Lutheran tradition we have that we refer to it as the opinion or the disposition of the law. And the idea is that because of the sinful bent of our hearts and the fact that we're so turned in on ourselves, that there inheres within us this pharisee (laughs) that wants to justify itself and i'm sure the reformed have a, Mm -hmm. a similar category they may not call it the same thing but nevertheless the idea is that because we're all sinners we all want to have our relationship with god our way and that usually means by making essentially ourselves into saviors
1: yeah you guys are keep bringing up this sense of injustice with the doctrine of justification it can't be this easy But it also exposes us to God's judgment. If God is our justifier, he must also be our judge. God is this external authority over us, and we don't like that. And I think that Friedrich Nietzsche, in that quote that I began with, Friedrich Nietzsche, there and in other places, really, I think, is a better diagnoser of the illness than a lot of preachers these days. There can be no God, he says, since man would not tolerate having such a witness. It's amazing. He makes no argument here or elsewhere for atheism. He isn't an apologist, putting together syllogisms and evidence and argument. At the heart of his denial of God really is that he can't tolerate having such a witness. Someone to stand against him and declare him to be guilty and isn't that really at the heart of at least some resistance among people to this doctrine
0: yeah i think it it absolutely is and and i i would as you said kind of applaud nietzsche at least for his his honesty there when i get into discussions with uh, with students and so forth they'll they'll often suggest that God doesn't exist because they don't like the way he does this, or God doesn't exist because they don't like the way he handled that issue, right? Problem of evil, for example, mm-hmm. or a whole host of other things. And I just kind of encourage them to remember that you can't read things or people out of existence because you don't like them, right? You may not like the current leadership in the White House or in the governor's mansion, but you can't read them out of existence for that. So be be mm-hmm. honest and say, I don't like this, and here's why. Mm-hmm. And then you can honestly engage it, and you can start to get some answers to those things. Oh, no, that's great. Talking about the holiness of God, I mean, I can't help but think
4: of Isaiah 6 and his response to experiencing the holiness of God is, woe is me, a man of unclean lips among a people of unclean lips. I mean, it's just a big reflection of need and failure and judgment. But you read on and see that God responds with the cleansing coal. But it raises the stakes, talking about the holiness of God. This is no longer pragmatic things that might be helpful. We're talking about life and death and relating to a holy God when you're not holy. And then focusing the attention, that's the scandals. You know, Calvin talking about the hearts and idol factory. This is what we do. We find ways to avoid this. And thankfully, he fixes our eyes on Christ and gives us that gift of faith. And shows us what has been done to reconcile us.
0: Yeah, in, in Lutheran dogmatics texts, it's often spoken about as being this sort of, there are two religions. There's the religion of the law, and there's the religion of the gospel, <laughs> right? The religion of the law is me reaching up to lay hold of a holy God in some way. Even systems that that deny the existence of a personal God still have a religion of law, whether they call it karma or, or anything else, right? The idea is it all depends upon my behavior. And then there's Christianity, which is the religion of the gospel, where God reaches down to lay hold of sinful human beings through the life, death, and resurrection of his son.
1: That sounds a lot like Romans 10, where Paul says that there's the righteousness based on the law, that the person who does the commandments shall live by them. And the righteousness of the law is always striving, climbing, But the righteousness based on faith, he goes on to say, says, do not say in your heart who will ascend into heaven or who will descend into the abyss. But what does it say? The word is near you in your mouth and in your heart. That is the word of faith, the gospel that we proclaim. Because if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. For with the heart one believes and is justified and with the mouth one confesses and is saved. For the scripture says, everyone who believes in him will not be put to shame, for there is no distinction between Jew and Greek, for the same Lord is Lord of all, bestowing his riches on all who call on him. For everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. So these two ways, ascending into heaven, descending into the depths, running around like a hamster on a wheel, or sit down and receive the good news that God is placing in your ears and in your hands.
0: And here, hopefully, listeners realize why we place such a strong emphasis on law and gospel. Absolutely. it's exactly what Paul's laying out for
1: us here. Absolutely. I love the language of the Westminster Confession on this. He justifies us not for anything done by us
0: or wrought within us, even by the Holy Spirit. That's right. And God does many things within us yeah. and gives us many good gifts, but we're not even justified by those.
1: Yeah. We're justified not because we are being sanctified. We're being sanctified because we are justified.
3: Romans chapter 5 verse 1 says therefore since we have been justified by faith we have peace. We possess it already all because of what God has done in Jesus. So certainly in the putting forward of his son to be the propitiation for our sins, In doing so, God draws us near.
0: Jesus says in places like John chapter 5, he who hears my word and believes him who sent me has everlasting life. Not might have it or could have it or will have it if you do super meritorious works of faith, hope, and love, but has eternal life. Folks, the law says do. The gospel says done. It is
1: finished. Jesus has accomplished our salvation. And uh, this doctrine is so deep that we could go scuba diving in it, never reach the bottom, and yet it is shallow enough for a child to wade in. And never think that this is a doctrine that you needed once upon a time, and now you've kind of matured, gone beyond it to other doctrines. Throughout your Christian life, make sure that Christ is at the center as your justification, your righteousness before the Father we'll pick up next week talking once again about uh, this great doctrine from another angle and look forward to being with you then.
2: The White Horse Inn is a listener-supported broadcast. To find out how to support our efforts, check out the support page of our website, whitehorseinn.org. If you're new to the White Horse Inn, be sure to click on the first-time visitor's link from our homepage, where you can order our free intro kit. By signing up for this kit, we'll send you a complimentary copy of the current issue of our magazine, Modern Reformation, along with extended-length editions of the White Horse Inn on CD, completely free of charge. All you have to do is request our intro kit. Simply look for the First Time Visitor's link on our homepage at whitehorseinn.org. That's whitehorseinn.org.